Detecting and responding to threats in the cloud is harder than doing it on-prem. Even when you do have the visibility you need, legacy security workflows weren't designed for the speed and complexity of cloud environments. Cloud-native security solutions from ExtraHop are purpose-built to spot threats across the hybrid attack surface, provide detailed investigation steps, and help you automate response. Request your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Um, let's see. I do have an announcement. Attend RSA. That's right. February 24th through the 28th. Securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020. You can sponsor an interview with us. That's right. You can sit down with actual security practitioners, not just journalists reading from a question sheet, but have a conversation um, with myself and Matt about what problem you solve and why you do it better than everyone else. And those will be aired on our social media channels, our YouTube channel, and incorporated into this show uh, in future releases after RSA. So you can keep that momentum going uh, and let our audience know, you know what you're doing uh, with your security solutions. Um, and you can register for the conference. Um, January 24th is passed, but you can still save $150 by visiting our website. Uh, off of RSA, and we've done a lot of great content with the RSA conference. Uh, students, uh, if you're a student, you can uh, definitely go to the RSA website and check it out. Um, there's a free day. They don't yeah. cover your travel, but... Yeah, but you can get into the conference Thursday yes. and Friday. Thursday and Friday. It's part of college day. Yes. Yeah. So it's awesome. <laughs> All righty. Uh, our guest for this segment is Stephen Bay. He has over 16 years of cybersecurity experience, spending military, government, consulting, and enterprise security. For 10 of those years, he supported the National Security Agency as a member of the military and contractor. And Steve, you talk about um, leading through crisis and about uh, your worst day, and we'll get to that. But I want to uh, first uh, know kind of how you got your start and a little bit about your career in information security. Sure, yeah. So I got my start um, very early on when I joined the military. I signed up and to be a part of the Air Force as a Persian Farsi linguist and supported the military in that regard for six years. And it was in that time where I was supporting the agency in which I got uh, roped into network security and uh, and network technologies. And when I separated from the Air Force, I signed on with Booz Allen as a contractor and started supporting NSA CyberShop. And that's really where I dove deep into the cyber realm of um, doing, providing cybersecurity for the U.S. government. You, 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 you had an interesting statement there. I, 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 you started network security, then you went into cybersecurity. There's this big debate about what's the difference. Can you give me a little bit of that? cyber versus network versus infosec etc because we see the term cyber used a lot now how, how do you define that term cybersecurity? yeah that's a great question um you know as i've thought about it i think the the differences are kind of splitting hairs to some extent but um you know cybersecurity to me is really protecting against the attacks that occur against your network um it's it, to me it's a subset of the overall network security but also goes beyond that where you're, you're trying to protect users and your assets and those sorts of things, right? Maybe when you view network security, it's how do I protect my network? How am I protecting um, the perimeter and uh, the, the devices that are sitting on the network? And then information security kind of, I think, encompasses all of the above, which is really designed to protect your information. And, you know, I kind of view information security um, as kind of, I guess, the overarching 
um, field with cybersecurity, protecting from hackers and protecting your assets and users and all that from hackers and exploitation and network security, more protecting your network and, and that sort of um, and that sort of realm. Right. So it's and I also view information security kind of as the. Um, uh, some I don't know if it's a softer sciences, right, but it's the compliance and the uh, assessments and the audit and all of that kind of falls under information security for me, whereas cybersecurity, I think, incorporates more of the hard sciences or the, the technical elements of it as well. Thank you. I, I think that was a good summary because a lot of people use the term cyber. You use it in a very detect-respond kind of attack right. perspective versus maybe more on the prevention and the overlap a little bit into detection when we were dealing with things like network security or endpoint. Uh, it, right. It's a slightly different variation, but we do hear that term cyber a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's always good to understand how people define that term because I think some people use it wrong, <laughs> personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's, I mean, there's so many different aspects to what we do that encompasses all the different uh, disciplines within security. Um, which I think is encouraging for those getting into our field, right? You don't right. necessarily have to be the deepest technical person, right? Yeah. You don't necessarily have to be that person that's just doing policy. There's, you know, everywhere in between. Um, and, you know, Steve, you had some really interesting experiences, uh, one in particular um, where now Edward Snowden, you work, he worked for you, with you, but you he were for me. Yeah. So about a month and a half before he fled the country, um, we hired him at Booz Allen and brought him onto our team in Hawaii. So I was, I hired him and was his, his supervisor, his boss when all that went down. And that's super interesting. Uh, and I want to get to like your worst day, but like, what, what can you tell us in the time that you uh, worked with Edward Snowden? Right. And I want to be sensitive to obviously there's yeah, things yeah. you probably can't say and things that you can uh, obviously stick to the things that you can, right. I want to get anyone in trouble. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, Edward, Ed was a, he he knew his stuff, right? One of the one of the oh criticisms of Ed after it all broke was a lot of people said, "Oh, he really wasn't that smart, really wasn't that technical." And I think that's all a fallacy. You know, I, we wouldn't have hired him if he didn't have strong technical skills. You know, he he, he and I got along really well. Um, he I was probably we didn't support the same customer, and so we our offices were kind of disparate across the organization and the and the, and the physical facility there. But I was probably the closest to him. So I was the one he would come to for questions and for mentoring and training. And we got along really well. And he, he, know, he knew his cybersecurity, right? He understands and understood Internet anonymization extremely well. Um, he was a big proponent and user of Tor. And he understood the global cyber threat, which is really one of the big elements that we were looking for in making that hire. You know, one of the interesting misconceptions or things people don't realize about Ed is that he wasn't a trained intelligence analyst. So Ed came to us as a sysadmin, right? And, and I, I kind of needed somebody who was very highly technical. Mm -hmm. And I needed somebody also who had an experience as an intelligence analyst. But finding that plus a needed security clearance in Hawaii was kind of like finding the unicorn, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it's just it's very, very difficult to find. And so when Ed came to our desk, he kind of he checked the security clearance box. And he certainly had the technical chops we were looking for. But he didn't have the intelligence analysis experience. He'd never worked in an intelligence shop before. Yes, he was at NSA for years and he was at CIA before that, but he had never done intelligence. He'd never been trained for it and those sorts of things. So as we brought him on, we, we had we went through a pretty rigorous training program as well. And he showed you know strong competence in that area of picking up the techniques and the tradecraft pretty quick. So Ed um, you know, Ed knew his stuff. And he I think that's those are some of the misconceptions that I've heard about Ed that um, I've, I kind of clear up as we 
as I've kind of gone through the years of uh, post events, so to speak. Now, I apologize, Steve, because you've probably been asked this question a million times, right? Did you have any indication or any signs that something like this was going to happen? You know, I obviously I've I've uh, I get asked that a lot and mm. I've thought about that almost every day in the six years since. And um, there really nothing that was <clears throat> that was a red flag that you should have seen it. And how could you miss this? It was so obvious. There was nothing like that going on. So, uh, you know, about the only thing, you know, there's two things that I look back that were kind of minor red flags. Right. Um, the first being that the one of the programs that he re- he released information on early on, um, I had a- had access to and, um, you know, many folks who had a similar job to him had ac- had access to. And he asked me multiple times about could he get access to that classified program? And the team he was supporting wasn't authorized to have that access. And so I explained that to him a couple of times. And it didn't really raise any red flags with me that he asked for this sort of access simply because I thought it was a reasonable question for somebody in his position, despite the fact that his office wasn't, um, I guess, prepared for it, wasn't, wasn't authorized to have that access, right? So, but again, that's nothing that's going to kind of make me, help me make this logical leap and right. that he's going now to, was access to this program something that he conceivably could have used for his existing role yeah. that he was playing right that's what it's yeah like. in yeah. fact some of the some of the sister organizations that he supported um there that his team supported um in, in other locations did have have had an authorization to use these programs gotcha gotcha this yeah so that by itself that. wasn't yeah yeah it wasn't a it, it was a logical request right 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 yeah exactly now did he end up getting access to that program is nope. that okay nope yeah uh, he he never got access to it and that wasn't anything because of him again he was only on that team for really uh, physically in the office for about a month and a week before he he disappeared right so there wasn't a lot of movement to make in that area what so then, what, what oh yeah was there something else that may have yeah, been a the other flag? one is more kind of a a uh an interesting story about how you know it kind of ties to insider threats as well is how he is kind of the way he was able to manipulate getting time off work and not drawing up suspicion, right? So if you've seen the movie, this comes up pretty heavily in the movie, but I don't, I don't know if it's true, but Ed claimed that he had epilepsy, right? So shortly after uh, joining our team in Hawaii, I he came to my desk and said, hey, Steve, I've got epilepsy. And I, it's been under control for quite a while. But, you know, it's for whatever reason, the last few months, it's really been creeping up and causing a lot of problems. And, it, and I just can't manage it anymore. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be missing work occasionally for doctor's appointments. I hope you don't mind. I know it's a hassle having a new employee that, um, that, that causes these kind of problems. But, you know, this is the thing this is I'm going through. Right. So I offered my support to get all the help you need. And so he started um, missing work occasionally or at least coming in at noon he'd stay late because he had doctor's appointments in the morning mm-hmm. and he ended up building this case for him needing to eventually take time off of work right so it was around mid-may he'd be just about to leave for hong kong apparently which i didn't know at the time of course and he came to my desk and said steve the epilepsy is getting very bad and i i just can't handle it anymore so i've got two full days of tests on monday and tuesday next week and uh, if those goes go bad i'm going to have to take some time off of work and, so I offer him my support and uh, I said, you know, let's make sure that we get in touch with HR and get you on short term disability. Um, so you're not, you know, bereft of pay during this period of time. 
And this is the only thing that ever kind of made me raise an eyebrow about Ed, but it, again, not enough to make that logical leap. But right. he said, oh, well, you know, I really don't want to go through uh, short-term disability. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a big hassle. I've got, I've got a lot of money saved up. I just want to go on leave without pay. And I said, okay, that's, that's fine. I, I don't know why it's really not that much work. It's a couple emails and you, mm-hmm. you put it in your timesheet. It's no big deal. And he hemmed and hawed and kind of went from there. Right. But it, th- yeah, it was the only time in my interaction with Ed where I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of weird that you would, you would want to go that route, especially when it's free money on the table. Right. But again, Con- conceivably that was, that was too late. Right. Yeah, that's right. How, how accurate are, are the, you mentioned the movies and I've, <laughs> I've seen, I think all of them, right? How, I mean, obviously the documentary one is highly accurate because it is actual footage um, right. of that time. Um, but there's the Hollywood version of, of uh, you know, that, that movie. how accurate is maybe Snowden. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. It took me probably two and a half years to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, and I still haven't seen citizen four all the way through. So it, it does, it's still sting six years later a bit. But um, the movie itself, uh, I, I call it a wonderful, if you want to call it that, act of fi- a work of fiction. Mm. Um, there are a lot of truths in it. There are some accuracies, but there's a lot of inaccuracies. You know, there's a scene where he goes hunting with the deputy director of NSA and uh, in, in Virginia and kind of gets sent on this special assignment to go to Hawaii to do all this, and which is a complete fabrication. Nothing mm-hmm. like that ever happened. I mean, I, I jokingly say to some extent in my uh when i when i do my speaking engagements keynotes and such that uh you know if if i was a nobody at nsa and he worked for me you know what's that going to tell you you know (laughs) (laughs) and and so i think the the movie was it was you know dramatized for hollywood and and there's some there's some factual elements to it but you have to really take almost all of it with a grain of salt can you speak to how he was able to exfiltrate the data? I know the various movies and documentaries don't give, I mean, they, uh, you don't know if the Hollywood version is accurate, right? We don't, we don't know that. And, I, and again, I want to get you in any trouble, but uh, is no, there no, anything no. you can speak to as to how that information was gotten out so that others can learn about, obviously this yeah, is a very secure sure. facility, and right? And then, you know, when I do my speaking on this, it's, that's a lot of what I touch on is these are the lessons we need to learn about. How do mm-hmm. we detect this? How do we protect ourselves from it? Right. So again, I only know kind of what's been in the public domain and what understanding my experience at NSA plus, um, you know, what was in the movies and all that, right? Um, it, it is apparent that he exfiltrated all that data through a thumb drive. Now, NSA has a policy, like much of the government, essentially that says thou shalt not use thumb drives, right? Um, but yet he was able to work around it. Now, this is all I want to spe- stress. This is all my own personal kind of theory, what I've pinned together. I mm-hmm. don't know exactly what's accurate here. Um, just want to make that clear. But what it seems to me that is likely is, you know, Ed was working for the IT directorate as a sysadmin before coming to my team. It seems likely to me that he, uh, when he left the IT side on a Friday and came to the intelligence side on a Monday, that he may not have had his, his privileges revoked from the IT side, right? Which then gave him kind of Intel user privileges married with admin privileges, which is mm-hmm. a combination for disaster. Um, and, and, if that were the case, he would have been able to, to uh, enable his uh, USB ports, be able to download uh, data and, and escalate privileges on various systems and all that, which if you have read the congressional report, um, documents that he well, he did do some of those things. Interesting. It, well, it, yeah, and, and there's a huge right. lesson there, right, of revoking yeah. privileges yeah. in an expedient manner, right? And that's also what, what gets people, I mean, we hear pen testers saying that too, that impersonating this user 
no one thought that they had all these privileges, but lo and behold, they did because they were granted. Right. I mean, in a lot of cases, a, a year ago or from whatever. A previous people, role, yeah, yeah, yeah people from forgot a previous about role. It. Yep, and uh, you know another interesting element to that is uh, you know why if, if NSA had this kind of goes to enforcing your policies, right? Why if NSA says you can't uh, use a thumb drive? Why didn't alarm bells maybe go off in right, a right. sock or something? Or how come when huge amounts of data was being downloaded, and maybe, maybe the maybe the alerts did go off, but maybe they weren't responded to, right? It's kind of a security monitor detection lesson. If you're going to have these policies, make sure you have ways to enforce it, which is another significant um, lesson that I, I took away from all that. Yeah, because well. what you would have thought would have been in place uh, yeah. is that there were detection mechanisms looking for USB drive usage mm -hmm. or escalation of privileges or something right. that would have set off alarms somewhere. And the question is, did they just get buried in the noise with everything else? This has been one of the big challenges yeah, right. on the whole detection that, that's response what side. The, that's what happened to the target breach, right? They, the alerts when target got breached uh, all fired, and they just buried, almost buried in alerts and nobody saw them. Right? So that happens all the time. And what what's scary about... You know, the USB thumb drive threat, and I've always talked about this over the years, is like, how do you prevent someone from taking it out of the building, right? This was obviously yeah. an extremely secure facility, but being yeah. security people, we can, we can speculate. And obviously, probably Edward Snowden is the only one that truly knows how he physically got it out, right? Um, but that's the danger of the technology that we have today. Right, and I think organizations struggle. I think NSA is the same way, right, with how... You, you don't want to create a culture of fear, right? And so you don't want to have this culture of complete and utterly, uh, and, you know, no trust at all, right? I know that people love this no trust concept. I don't, and I, I understand it from a tech standpoint, not necessarily from a people standpoint. I don't necessarily subscribe to it. Because I think you need to build a culture that is a good place to work. People want to be there and that you, tr that you trust. And NSA has gone through a full vetting and background checks, mm -hmm. security clearance processes, right. and clearly... You know, it's never perfect. You're not going to catch everything as evidenced by Snowden and previous folks who have had issues as well with similar things. Right. Um, so, you know, do you does it make sense to scan everybody as they come in and out of the building? Does it make sense to spot check? Does it make sense to um, build in more subtle ways of detection? Who knows? Right. But I, I think you have I think the organizations, especially groans like NSA, you tow a fine line between trust versus um security and you and obviously nsa is going to lean way more towards security than say you know a, a restaurant down the street or something um but they still need to build a, they still needs to be a place where people want to work and will enjoy working and that's i think that's the challenge a lot of organizations have yeah, and i think instinctively we we want to trust right we yeah. we are social yeah. creatures we yep. have interactions we instinctively want to have trust and so it's it's a really hard balance when in an environment like that, where there's some level of trust you want, you want to have, you want to create a nice culture, but then there are cases where you're like, ooh, yeah, should we well, have done I, something and different? And Steve, I, I think you're an example of that, right? You trusted Edward. He came with a medical issue, and you were being a nice person trying to, to help him. But now, at, at what point did you realize that he had violated your trust? Uh, the day the day he broke, the news broke that he was the guy behind it. Mm. Um, even, even after the initial... Uh, uh, leaks started coming out. They hit the Guardian and the Washington Post and all that. Uh, I never made the connection that maybe Snowden was the guy behind it. Right. Right? You thought he was out so, on medical leave, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so that that day, um, June 9th, 2013, was probably the worst day of my life. I mean, it, I've, I've had some bad days, like most people have. Um, but certainly professionally, that was that was a rough day. And 
you know, leading up to it, um, you know, my fear for Ed wasn't anything about uh, stealing data and releasing it out to the public and all that. Nothing like that. It was, you know, because he had epilepsy, I mm. had thought because he hadn't been responding to us for a couple of weeks that maybe he had been driving against doctor's orders along some cliffside road in Hawaii and drove off a cliff or something. And he was lost in the ocean. That was like my big scary fear. Right. Mm. But more likely I figured maybe he went home to Maryland to be with his parents and went off the grid for a little while. Right. Which is what I thought was most likely. Mm. Yeah. Because he had built a a relationship with you and you had built a trust with him where you thought he was really sick and, and you feared for his safety not thinking anything else malicious was actually going yeah. on, but he, you know the whole story plot of how he kind of orchestrated this is just—it's—it's it, a—it's an interesting learning case for yeah. anybody right. in the profession because it's like, how many times have we dealt with somebody that's been sick or lost a parent or mm. a child or whatever? Right, you feel for them, but you don't think that it's not true. Right, yeah. and you don't want to go digging into their lives when right. they're on medical leave. Right. Right. And, you know, that's that's one of my lessons. I'm a, I'm a naturally trusting and optimistic person. Right. And I still probably trust a little too much than I should, even despite my experience with Snowden. You know, but I I, I don't nowadays as I, I manage folks today. Right. And I've, I've managed many people over the years. Um, I still you know, if you weren't going to go on sick, take a sick day here or there, you have the cold or flu, you're staying home from work. Totally cool. I'm not going to require, you know, a medical note or doctor note or anything like that. But, you know, if you're going to take time off of work for a period of time, you know, you're on a short-term disability, leave without pay, then, I, you know, that's one of those things that I've kind of evolved to, you know, I probably should have done that in the first place, but demand to see is to make sure that we're kind of validating these things today. But, but you're right. I mean, if you even put yourself, yes, I, yes, I was working at NSA and it was a high security environment, right? But NSA has already vetted these people mm-hmm. um, through the security clearance process. He'd been working in the intelligence community for what, 2013, about six, five, six years at this point. And, um, you know, and, and there's also an element of you never think it's going to happen to you. We, you know, right. we went through constant training on how to protect yourselves and how to uh, from um, from making bad choices and leaking information and what the consequences are. And, we, you know, talking about the Robert Hansons of the world and all these uh, folks who leaked data or stole data back in the past during the Cold War or whatnot. And we're, we're constantly trained on that all the time. But you never really think it's going to happen to you. Right. And so I, as I look back. People once asked me, I was doing an interview once and somebody asked, well, would knowing what, you know, would you, would you hire him again? Right. And I said, well, knowing what I know now, of course not. Right. But if I put myself back in the shoes in February, 2013, when I met him, yeah, right. probably would because he knew his stuff. Right. And he was smart. I, I, I would have had no way of knowing he was going to do what he did. And it's just kind of that reality. It's just who, who's going to think that the guy that works for you, is going to steal millions of top secret documents, flee to Hong Kong, release them to the world, and end up in Russia for the next six years. I mean that, and then become this global media sensation and hero to many people. I mean that's that's not something I would have, would have ever expected. Right. Yeah. Now on on that day, June 9th, uh, twenty thirteen. Well, I'm just curious what the aftermath was like, but also I think let's tune it for our audience. Like, what are some lessons learned when you? then now realize this has happened and start doing the investigation. What are the right questions to ask and where do you uh, begin and partake in that journey of investigation? Sure. So let me, um, let me get kind of get into the story for you and I'll, I'll give you a couple of, you know, a little bit of time before that um, just to, to help kind of convey what, what it was like and what happened. Um, 
So as I mentioned, Snowden ended up going on medical leave for a couple of weeks, right? And so he um, he left on May 20th, which is a Sunday. He flew to Hong Kong. Again, I didn't know any of this. This is all my piecing it together. Mm. He had his medical appointments on um, the next two days, Monday and Tuesday. In fact, he emailed me on Tuesday night, apparently from Hong Kong, I've learned now, saying, hey, the medical test went bad. I'm going to have to go out on leave. I hate to do this to you. And I responded back with the, hey, I'm really sorry to hear that, man. That really stinks. You know, take care of yourself. Do what you need to uh, to get better. And please, let's get in touch with HR and let's get you that short-term disability. And he emails me back the next day on Wednesday. And he says, um, uh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I'll get in touch with HR. Talk to you later. And those aren't exact quotes. I don't have the email. Sure. Still, but it was essentially that, right? And, and boy, do I wish I still had those emails. I actually get nerdy for email header analysis. If I, if nerdy, <laughs> I, think, I love email headers. And so I wish I had those emails and could do all that analysis on them, but that's a digression. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, next week and a half, heading into the end of May, pay, pay timesheets are due. Um, he's not responding to anything. I call him, I email him, and I'm, and I'm getting worried about him. So the last day of the, of the month, I contact my boss who lived in Georgia and said, hey, uh, Ed's not responding to anything. I'm really worried, you know, and, and, this, and I was pretty new at managing folks at that time as well, by the way. And, you know, kind of how do I handle this situation? He gave mm. me some guidance and he was really kind of the savior for me as well. In that even though our guy was on medical leave, um, he called NSA and said, hey, we want to let you know we've got a guy on medical leave, but he's not responding to anything. Mm. So we thought you should be aware of it um, as a security concern. And uh, and, you, and they, they said, thanks. Well, that, we appreciate that. So the next Monday, the first part of June, and parenthetically, um, my wife just uh, was out of the country uh, in Japan with my daughter and she just had a miscarriage um, for our what would have been our fifth kid. And uh, so there's all kind of all this stress piling on me and the kids. My wife stuck this Japanese hospital and I'm home with my other three boys at the time of that whole next week. Wow. And uh, Monday morning, uh, I get a call from NSA security. And I had known these guys pretty well because I had process help. I'd worked through getting all of my people that got hired on in Hawaii onboarded and all that. So I was on a first name basis with some of these folks. And they said, hey, Steve, um, we hear you got a guy missing. He's out on medical leave. You know, we don't normally get involved in medical issues. Um, but, you know, we're a close-knit family here in Hawaii. So we're going to we want to help you look for him and see if we can we can help you out. And I said, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I didn't think anything of it. I think looking back now, I'm like, maybe they knew a little something more. Right. than. Uh, but you obviously had a lot of other stuff going on at the time, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I spend the next week looking for him, um, driving around the island, calling his girlfriend, driving by his place, trying to find his girlfriend's place, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think it was Thursday that week, that first article from The Guardian hit. And it really sent shockwaves to the agency amongst all of us. And uh, you had subsequent articles the next couple of days, I think Friday, Saturday, new ones come out from the Washington Post, another publication. And we're all kind of blown away by it. And so Saturday, June 8th, I'm hanging out with one of my buddies who we both we went to church together, but we also um, he was a, sar uh, a sergeant in the army and our desk touched. And so we worked and we worked together. Um, so we, we had this really close connection. We we're hanging out, chit chatting. And I was telling about my crazy week and all the stuff that happened with my wife and how Ed's gone missing. And and he had met Ed a couple of times and he stopped me and said, Steve, wouldn't it be crazy if Ed were the guy leaking all this stuff? Oh, my God. And, and I said, dude there's no way there's no way ed would do something like that but man if he did it would be my absolute worst nightmare and so the next morning june 9th um i'm in a i was in leadership for our church group and so i said this church meeting and i tell all the folks in the church meeting about my crazy week and everything my phone was off and the meeting ends at 10 a.m 
and I turned my phone back on and it had just blown up with missed phone calls and text messages ranging from senior Booz Allen folks to my mm-hmm. employees that work for me, uh, people, my friends, uh, people on the island that I was associated with friends that knew about my crazy week. Um, we're all say, try, trying to say, hey, do you know this guy? And I'm like, I was a little confused, but it just so happened that the first text message I saw was from that buddy from the day before. And all he put in the text message was something along the lines of, sorry, man, looks like your worst nightmare came true. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I, I browsed, I don't know, CNN or Drudge Report or something on my phone. And there's Ed's face staring right back at me. Wow. And uh, I went into an, an empty room in the church and uh, just melted down crying, just lost it completely. And, you know, all the, all the kind of irrational rational and irrational fears i guess dump on me at once right it's ranging from the very personal to i'm going to be fired i'm going to lose my job i'm going to go to jail to lose my family to my employees are going to lose their jobs booz allen's going to lose their government contracts mm-hmm. um nsa is going to lose their collection assets across the globe cia black sites are going to get um get um identified and operators are going to get off china is going to run wild and take over the world terrorists are going to go crazy and blow stuff up, right? All this stuff just starts dumping on my shoulders at this time. No matter how irrational it was, these are the thoughts going through my head. And I drove home and uh, uh, we lived a few minutes away. I drove home and uh, my wife could tell something was wrong. And I had told, she'd gotten home the day before and I told her uh, the night before about my week and about Ed. And I pulled her into our bedroom and closed the door and locked it and uh, she cried on her shoulder and said, I think all I remember saying was, it's him, over and over, it's him. And uh, uh, she knew exactly what I meant. And uh, she was great and gave me all the comfort and support I needed. And then the rest of the day was, you know, crisis management, right? And I actually, mm. I, I both do an insider threat talk and presentation. I also do one on crisis management, talking about how we, how we work through and prepare for crises and all this. And all, the, all my lessons stem from this day. And, uh, you know, one of the great lessons that I learned is uh, put your, if you're a manager and you're going through crisis, put your people first. And uh, talked to all my folks, all 15 of my employees, and talked through it with them. Some didn't know him. Some were close to him. He was an employee referral, by the way. So the lady that referred to him was really struggling through it all. And uh, and then that then you know kind of after all that, the call that I knew was coming came right. So yeah. I answered my phone, and it's it's NSA, and they're saying, "Hey, um, we need you to come meet with us in the FBI tonight." And uh, and so I. I hopped in my car a few hours later, and I said, this is when the panic starts to set. Yeah, you knew that was coming, but even though you knew that, it's still nerve-wracking, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, right? And, and, you know, I'm not one. I know Hollywood is Hollywood, right? But I start going through my mind or all these pictures of interrogation, right? Like, I'm picturing myself sitting in this dark room with a hot lamp shining on me. Right? And That's uh, how my friend Josh Wright explained it to me. I'll never forget it. He's like, you end up in a room with a metal folding chair and just a, a one light bulb on a you know cord just swinging, right? That's how I always envisioned when you get That's called into a meeting like right? that. <laughs> yeah, luckily it wasn't like that, right? Like the FBI agents and the NSA folks were totally cool. Um, you know, I sat in there for three or four hours and it was the same, probably 10 questions over and over, making sure my story wasn't changing and all that. Mm-hmm. But it was it was chill. Like nobody really blamed us or me. So so yeah, it was it was a crazy day. Wow. Um, and then, so the second part of your question, I think was tied to the lessons learned. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a million lessons learned. I'm going to start from, from just a crisis standpoint, I'll touch on that. And then we can maybe get it if you want, get in the tech stuff, um, after, um, 
but a couple of things I learned that about dealing with a situation like this. Now, everybody's going to have a major crisis in their life. You're going to have that worst day that's just awful. And how you respond makes all the difference. Now, mine happened to be at this big global scale, and others may be more personal to them and more local, but it doesn't make your crisis any less of a crisis than mine was, right? Um, and some of the, a couple of the quick lessons that I learned, right, is one, preparation is key. I wasn't prepared for it. Luckily, I, I made good choices throughout it overall, and I was able to endure it, but I think it would have been a lot easier and cleaner in kind of the ma- aftermath and cleanup to um, had I been more prepared, right? Just kind of war game it out, right? And work with your team to what are the potential scenarios. Number two is hold to your ethics. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people, and, and this urge came to me, was it was very much CYA, right? Crisis mode, I got to protect myself and my family. And I, and I found that when when... Uh, the, my my initial instinct was to put my hands up like it wasn't me, right? And the, you get these temptations to potentially make unethical decisions. And luckily, I didn't make any unethical decisions. And I handled everything I think properly, and I've never been criticized for that for the handling of it. Um, but I do know that a lot of people, when crisis hits, tends to they tend to try to protect themselves almost a little too much and make unethical choices. And it's very easy to lose your ethical code in those circumstances. And so I encourage people to. Know where, know where you stand. What are the ethical lines you will never cross? And, and be aware of that and hold, hold true and hold strong to that when you're going through your crisis. Because it can be easy to want to pawn every, all your problems off on other people and make unethical choices. Um, and then third is, um, at least in my case, dealing with kind of a legal situation, be as cooperative and truthful as, as possible. And so those are some of my the very simple lessons learned from a crisis standpoint anyway i think there's more to your question than that but we can probably yeah so like what was what was the investigation like what what advice do you have for others that may all right now you're coming out of this right you've been cleared and now there's teams of people right they're responsible for figuring out what happened right how how should i mean obviously this is the extreme case of insider threat right but this kind of thing insider threats happen all the time what advice do you have for those doing the investigations in the in the response yeah, so um, you know, I didn't have to do much of the investigation. That was left to uh, NSA and FBI and their whole team doing the investigation themselves. I was more of a contributor to it in terms of what did I know, right? So going back to what I just said is one, if you're going through a similar situation, be as truthful and honest as possible. Don't ever try to hide things. Even if you're worried that it's going to make you look bad, it might cause some problems at home, um, but especially when you're dealing with something as global and mm. legalese as this, um, be as honest and truthful as possible. Number two is take ownership, right? Um, if the next day at work, you ready? This is a Sunday when all of it went down. I had to go into work the next day and I had to face my clients. We were, we were consultants in the, in the space. We're guests at NSA. I wasn't an NSA employee. Right. Um, we're, we're guests there. And I take that very seriously. And I also was good friends with the team, with the leaders of the team he was on because I had supported their parent team back in Maryland when I worked in Maryland. So I'd known these folks really well and I, I had personal friendships with them. And so the last thing I was going to do, kind of like I said before, is go in and put my hands up and say, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. Don't look at me, right? Um, yeah, I had nothing to do with it. I had no idea Snowden was going to do what he did. But, the, but I wasn't about to go try to pawn responsibility. And so I got into the office that day. I plopped my bag down at my desk, and I walked straight over to his, te- his government leads. And I said, I'm sorry. This is my fault. This is on me. What can I do to make it better? And that really went a long way, I think, to, um, uh, to, I guess, protecting myself, 
making the investigation easier. Um, incur- I encourage my team to be fully cooperative. Um, and then Booz Allen, by the way, all my leaders that I talked to the day before, they said the same thing. We're you know we're going to cooperate 100%. Don't you be completely honest and those sorts of things. And and that went a long way for it. Um, and that that whole next day, you know, I, I spoke with leaders across NSA Hawaii, all the way up to the director of NSA Hawaii, and. Um, the nice thing was, is nobody really blamed me or blamed my team or my company or anything like that. It was just, you know, and the, the, the director of NSA Hawaii at the time really put it best. He said, you know, Steve, you got caught holding the hot potato when time ran out. And that's, right. that's really, yeah, yeah, it's true. But, but you tried to certainly... keep those relationships and you tried to manage through that and, and really keep the integrity yeah. to figure out what happened and, and through the whole investigation, I think that's something that's you know, super important here. We're, we're dealing with national secrets. We're dealing with national security. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to know what happened. We want to know how it happened. We want to be able to put mechanisms in place so it never happens again, right? And if you yeah. don't, you know, continue to foster those relationships and cooperate fully, we we may never have learned how to stop this in the future. Right. right? What was the most significant change uh, in security protocols that happened as a result? You know, um, I can only speak to what the changes were when I was, but when, when that occurred immediately because mm-hmm. I, I left the agency a month and a half later, which is its own crazy story. Um, but one of the things is NSA uh, centralized uh, IT and security management back to Maryland, uh, kind of took a little yep. power out of the out of Hawaii and the other sites' hands, and that was probably one of the most significant things. I don't know if it's still that way. I, mm-hmm. Again, I haven't been there since then. But they, they restructured how they did security and all that. Um, from uh, my standpoint and the stuff that I had control over, um, you know, the, the things that I really changed from a security standpoint is probably, I mean, it's not probably the best, but just a little more cynical, a little bit more questioning, mm. you know, for when people make claims on certain things and make sure I'm doing my due diligence and, and looking for red flags, right? I mean, and those sorts of things. So Yeah. Well, they were pink flags probably at the time, but now yeah. you might elevate yeah. that yeah. to a red flag now because you've lived through that experience. Right, exactly. Now, I'm sure you've been asked questions along these lines of, you know, if you could talk to Ed, what would you say? And, and like, what's your assessment? And I'm sure you see him on TV and he spoke at the Hope Conference, right, remotely yeah. and all those things. Like, what's your assessment of where uh, where Ed is? And he's in Russia today, was it? Yeah, he's in Moscow. So, Moscow, right? yeah. Yeah, you know, it's... I've, I've thought about that a lot too. Uh, I used to be a lot more angry. In fact, I got asked this question in an interview I did uh, about, I don't know, three years ago. And I think the first thing I said is I'd want to walk up and punch him in the face right. and then we talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't yeah. really feel that way as much now. I, you know, honestly, I would, I would, if I, if the opportunity ever came, I would love to sit down and just understand really what the motivation was. I do question some of the altruism behind his motivation. I don't think he's quite as altruistic as mm-hmm. he claims to be, but maybe that's just my own jaded, opinion of it all right um so i'd like to understand that a little more the other thing is is um you know i I think he he he's so active and set in his beliefs that there's really no changing it but so much of what he claimed was inaccurate and um you know as i mentioned at the beginning you know he wasn't an intelligence analyst and he didn't understand the way that nsa protected um, americans and our five eye partners data and those sorts of things right and um, and the types of training we had to go to and how seriously NSA took it, at least to, from my perspective, right? I mean, I had been an analyst there for 10 years and NSA had very strict rules. They had very strong oversight and compliance and clearly there were abuses, right? I mean, 
you go back to the Comey testimony and all those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yes, there were abuses. But so much of what Snowden said um, was either inaccurate or or um, an outright lie, right? It just or, or, or at, at best missing context. Um, and, and that that it's that context that I, I think I would love to figure out how to get that message out there more and explain that more. But I think we're kind of in this environment, this Twitterized environment, where where if you have to sit down and explain something, you lose people's interest and nobody cares. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's, if it can't be said in 140 characters, don't worry about it. Yeah. So it, it, th- those types of conversations I would like to have with him to understand his motivation and, and really what drove it beyond what's in the media. I And I'm not sure how frequently there is a situation like uh, Edward Snowden where uh, he's in kind of, air quotes, safe hiding, right? right. What, what's the protocol for like the ongoing investigation? Like, does it reach a point where the U.S. government gives up or is that left to control from the president or the head of NSA? Like what, what happens with the investigation in an attempt to uh, pursue yeah. and eventually try to arrest someone like an Edward Snowden? That's a really good question. And I, and I can't really answer it accurately or, or for the government because I, I'm not involved in that whole process. Um, but it seems to me, you know, if I were to speculate, forgive me for a speculation, that's always dangerous to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it really becomes uh, kind of a, for lack of a better term, an opportunity cost, right? To what extent is it really worth going after Snowden and, and you know, trying to get him out there in Russia and uh, or and make all these efforts to, you know, to, uh, to, re- to, I guess, arrest him or some people feared he might be assassinated and all that. You have to make this determination in terms of what's, what's it really worth, right? Mm. And Snowden did a pretty good job of preparing himself and protecting himself and being stuck in Russia and having Putin's protection is certainly a, a benefit to him because if, if the U S could get him back, they certainly would, but they're not, you know, at some point the damage is done, right? Snowden has been out of the NSA since May of 2013. It's yeah. six, almost seven years later now. And what more is, I mean, they've, they've probably changed. They've likely changed all of their procedures and operational um, structures. And uh, most of the stuff that he leaked is probably, old news by now and irrelevant. So is it really worth going after him, you know, full bore? Probably not. If you get him back, great. Yeah. Well, you know, well, they could, they'll, they'll try him and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. But well, point, Steve, what I hear you saying is the, the threat, you know, has to warrant what type of response an ongoing yeah. investigation is. It sounds like the threat is right. greatly lessened. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think Snowden was probably smart in how he handled it. I mean, I don't know how much of what he said was true, but, you know, he claimed to have had multiple copies of of the data um, out there already that he claimed that he had no control over that data or no access to any of that data anymore, which, by the way, I don't believe in the least mm. um, that part of it. I do believe he had multiple copies. and I believe he gave copies to media and all that. But I think he, I, I can't imagine he didn't keep copy himself. Um, and he basically said, you know, if anything happens to me, they're author. You know, I've basically given instructions that everything's to be released. So that probably helped him and protected him to some extent in the immediate immediacy, especially if I'm putting on kind of my uh, tinfoil hat and all the CIA movies I've seen over the years. Right. Um, but you know, as, again, it's like, like we said, at some point as time goes on, all that stuff becomes less relevant over the years. Mm, yeah. Wow. What well, a story. Yeah. Steve, that was an amazing story. Uh, thank you so much, uh, for sharing it with us and our listeners. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Yes. 
feel free to come back as well. We like having you as yeah, a guest. Yeah, anytime. So. You guys want to talk security, I'm in. Let's do absolutely, it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. See you next time.